Death is a relentless, vicious foe. We can try to ignore it, deny it, and believe we can escape it. But death is a bounty hunter who never quits. As we look at the Gospel of John, chapter 11, Dave Wurtzen, our study leader, will take us to the funeral of one of Jesus' best friends. His purpose? To help us discern the cause of death, to meet the conqueror of death, and to look forward to the end of death. You know, I find in my own life, and as I talk together with brothers and sisters, I find believers that allow Satan to make them incredibly afraid. They live under tremendous fear. What's going to happen to my kids? What's Satan's going to do? What kind of a world are we living in? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has power over disease. Ultimately, he's going to give all of us a body that Satan won't be able to touch. He has power over the demonic. We've learned that in the exorcism of the gathering demoniac. You see, Satan is not in the class of the Lord Jesus, so don't place him there. If you are a child of the king, there's no need to be afraid of the adversary. You need to respect him. Jude tells us not to revile him, but we don't need to be afraid of him. Because in the name of Jesus, not as a magical formula, but as a powerful statement of reality, when you mention the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan knows that he's beaten. The scripture says, resist him and he'll flee from us. We need to teach our kids... Instead of trying to isolate them or protect them, we need to be able to teach them reality. But Jesus enables us to be able to face even children with reality and have it become a reality that doesn't have to bring fear and doubt and terrible tremors up and down their spine. Instead, they can know that Jesus Christ has conquered the ultimate real boogeyman who actually is there, but he's defanged him. The sting of death is still present with us, but one day it's going to be vanquished. And that's why it's so appropriate to talk about Jesus' power over death. Just the mention of the word death, and whenever you want to have the kind of scare people, we automatically turn into macabre scenes of coffins and death. I often find as a pastor teacher, like one of the customs down here in Texas, is sometimes people want to have the coffin open at the end of a funeral. And the responsibility of a pastor is to stand at the head of that coffin in order to bring support and help to the family in a very strategic hour of need. I like to watch people's eyes when they come by the coffin. There's very few people that can look at death. In fact, it's very unnerving for people. And so many people will walk way away from it. Many people will just catch a glimpse almost out of curiosity and then turn away. But it's very, very hard for them to face death. In fact, the truth of the matter is, even mentioning that word causes a lot of us emotionally to begin to retreat. Because that thought, the personal thought that one day my physical life will end, brings terror. It brings tremendous fear. You might be in your midlife and you might go through a period where all your life you hardly even thought about death and all of a sudden it begins to wake you up in the night with cold sweat and you have anxiety attacks over it and you're afraid. That's not an uncommon experience. I've had it. Some of you have had it. Some of you will have it. 
Death brings a tremendous fear. And what we want to talk about, I believe, can give us the answer to that tremendous anxiety attack when, as soon as we begin to contemplate, I could be dead. On the other hand, I think we'll learn there's some of the rest of you that look upon death almost as a friend because you want to escape emotionally because, because Satan has convinced you that this life is not a good thing and you're discouraged and you're depressed. And when you feel like that, then you look upon death as a friend. What we're going to learn today is going to, going to give us some truth to teach us that death is not a friend. Death is an enemy. Life is a friend. As we tune into the Heavenly Father, the Father teaches us about life. Now, as we talk about death, and before we get to Jesus' power over it, we need to talk about where it came from in the first place. And to do that, as we've been doing the last several weeks, we found out that almost everything begins back in Genesis. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, and let's look at the cause of death. What is the cause of death? Why is it that every single community across the United States and across the world has to have some form of a graveyard? Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. There's the expression of the love of God, the freedom that God gives us, an expression of his goodness towards us. But, verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Now what's going to happen to you if you eat from that tree? You will tell me. Surely die. Tell me again. You will surely die. Does anybody have any trouble understanding that? Is that complicated? If mom and dad came to you kids and said, listen, don't do this. If you do it, you are surely going to be spanked. Is that hard to understand? Now, how many of you kids have ever known you knew we'll have confession time? Have any of you kids ever known for sure you will surely, certainly be spanked. But you went ahead and did it anyway. Anybody ever done that? Now, why does that happen? How many of you adults have ever done that? Good. Some of the adults are being very honest as well. Now, why is that? Now, I mentioned that to you because sometimes we try to get down on Adam and Eve. We try to get down on them because look what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. It says to Adam, the Lord God said to Adam, because you listened to your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. You broke my command. I told you very clearly not to eat of that tree. You broke that command. Therefore, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, hard labor, you will eat your food. And here is the key phrase I want you to see until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now Genesis chapter 2 describes a very powerful scene where the Lord God, like a marvelous artist, takes a lump of dirt, maybe mixes some water with it to make some mud and some clay, and he fashions a man. He fashions a statue of a man. The ultimate Michelangelo, the divine Michelangelo, sculptured Adam. Instead of David, the Lord God started out with Adam, Adam. 
And then he breathed into that statue, which is, an, which is something that an artist can never do. And the artist created a human being named Adam that reflected him, that was like him, that was given the, the gift of personality. And that clay was no longer just lifeless stuff. It became alive. Now, what is death? You see, when Adam chose to disobey God, what he did was he entered the realm of anti-God. He entered the realm of anti-creation, anti-life, and that's what death is. Death is turning away from the author of life, and what is left? When you turn away from the author of life, what is left? The kingdom of death. You see, death is the natural, inevitable result of turning away from the one that breathes life. And that's the tragedy of it. As we turn to Genesis chapter 5, you can see the powerful ramifications of God's statement, from dust you were taken, to dust you're going to go. One of the agonizing realities of death is that it's going back to before the creation of God. One of the most agonizing realities of death is to think of a physical body that you loved, that you cherished of your loved one, and it's going back to dust. I've shared with you in the past, but it's a moving illustration that really faced me with this when we were in the Holy Land at the Rockefeller Museum. I was glibly going to the museum and going from just one exhibit to the next trying to get all my archaeological I've done a lot of reading in that area, and it's really exciting to be able to see not the pictures, but the real things. So I was going from one glass case to the next and one exhibit to the next, and I didn't even notice that Mary's dad, Dad Van Campen, was riveted at one exhibit. I walked over the exhibit, and I looked at the exhibit, and I said, as I walked up behind him, you know, what's going on? And I looked at his face, and big tears were rolling down his face. And then I looked again, and I knew exactly what was happening. As I moved up behind Dad and I put my arm on his shoulder, he said, that's what's happening to my boy. It was very soon after David, Mary's youngest brother, had died. And looking at that recapturing of an ancient site and the skeletons sent terror and some of the most agonizing sorrow that you can ever have. And that's a very real part of human existence. We try to cover it up. We run away from it. But what Genesis chapter 3 is telling us is that because we are a part of a race that's chosen anti-creation, we've turned away from the breath of life that we go back to the dust. You look at Genesis chapter 5, it says that God created Adam to be a living soul, but look, it says, and Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. In verse 8, and Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Now that's sick. That's terrible. That's the terror that we fear. That's what we're wrestling with on this planet. But I want to share with you something. Even in Genesis chapter 5, the heavenly king is so loving that even for the rebellious race of Adam, he gave a little bit of hope. Because what he showed was that though he was the living God, because he was a living God, he could conquer death. And not everybody 
had to label over their life, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Because look what it says about Enoch. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him. And there is a man that didn't label over his life, and he died. Instead, the Creator reached down in grace and gave a tremendous foretaste of what's going to happen to all those that are in Christ at the rapture when God reaches down and we won't write over that whole generation of believers and they died. It'll be instead, and the Lord, they walked with God because they were believers, and then the Lord took them. We've got another instance of God's grace in the life of Elijah. The Lord brought a chariot down from heaven, a heavenly chariot, and the great prophet Elijah, instead of writing over his life and he died, the Lord brought a chariot, another forepicture, another type of the rapture, where the heavenly chariot comes down and takes Elijah home. And God graciously in the Old Testament is telling us, Satan's not going to have the last word. Not everybody's going to go to dust. Not everybody's going to enter that kingdom and not have victory over it. There's going to be an escape, and I'm going to provide it. Now that brings us to John chapter 11, because we look at what the problem is, the cause of death. The cause of death is that all of us are sons of Adam. Romans chapter 5 makes it very clear in Romans 5, 12 through 14. It says, in Adam all die. It says that in Adam we've all committed sin. Now, lest you struggle with that idea in Romans 5 of the solidarity, the union that we have with Adam, you notice when I ask the kids, how many of them have known that disobedience to mom and dad would produce a very negative consequence? How many of them went ahead and did it anyway, and they all laughed and shut up their hand? And you adults, because you're honest, because you're, most of you are believers, you shut up your hands too. Now, what were you saying? You were saying we're all sons of Adam. And when people get all uptight about what Adam did, you're not going to go to hell for what Adam did. The Bible doesn't teach that. You're going to go to hell for what you do because you're like Adam. Because we're united with him. We're made out of the same stuff that he did. And naturally, in our own strength, we all make the same choices that he did. And that brings us to John chapter 11 and what Jesus is going to do about it. God sent the great conqueror into the world to deal with those who live all their life, according to Hebrews chapter 2, who live all their life in the fear of death. If you're afraid of death, John chapter 11 is a chapter of the Bible that you should just sit in for a while and think about it. This chapter has brought tremendous light into my own life and in Mary's life in times of crisis. When we begin John chapter 11 with the first few verses and the unhurried Emergency squad. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Just so you have the geography right, Bethany is about a couple miles over the hill, a little bit to the east of Jerusalem. When you go over the back side of Bethany, you go down to Jericho. If you go over the front side of it, you're right up on the Mount of Olives, and you can look right at the temple. You go over the crest of the hill and you're in Bethany. The Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, is right on one face of the mountain. Just over the mountain on the hill on the other side is the city of Bethany. 
And it's still there today, and it's still a prospering little town outside of Jerusalem. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, the idea of reminding us of that, we have some special intimate friends of the Lord Jesus. Mary was probably the woman that the Lord loved in a family brother-sister way, and I, I think it's important to realize that, that tremendous gift in the family of God of being able to have relationships with the opposite sex that don't have to be built on erotic love. They can be built on friendship love. And the Lord mirrored or reflected or illustrated, modeled for us that kind of love in an incredible way with Mary and Martha. The Lord loved these precious two women. I think every woman should join with Mary and Martha. Have the relationship with your Savior like Mary and Martha had. Jesus is that ultimate man that will help you to relate to men the way that you should. Because Jesus is that ultimate personality that loves every one of the girls, from the single ones to the married ones. And the neat thing about the fact that Jesus has ascended to heaven and sent his spirit is that every girl can have the relationship with Jesus that Mary and Martha had. But in the earthly life of Jesus, when Jesus was limited in his physical being, he couldn't have that kind of close relationship with everybody, but he did choose to have it with Mary and Martha. So if anybody has a handle, a relationship handle, on the Son of God, Mary and Martha have it. So the sisters in verse 3 sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now why did they send that message? They wanted Jesus to heal Lazarus. When they sent the message, what do you think they wanted Jesus to do right away? Come quick. If you call up David at the fire department and say, there's an emergency here, my son is sick. What do you want him to do? You want him to crank the sirens up, get out of that garage as fast as they can, and get to your house, right? How many of you heard a siren this week? Why are there sirens? So that the ambulance can go fast, and hopefully not have another accident, but to go fast because time is of the essence. When you're sick and it's, there's a crisis, when there's been an accident, time is of the essence. The sisters are giving the equivalent of 911 to Jesus. Now look what Jesus does. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it, it is God's glory. So that the God's Son, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now that is really heavy. You know, Jesus said exactly the same thing about the man that was born blind. He said, this man wasn't born blind because of any sin that he did or what his parents did, but this man is blind so that he can bring glory to God. So I say, Lord, you mean to tell me that sickness and blindness brings glory to you? And Jesus says, no. I hate blindness. I created eyes to see. When eyes don't see, it's the antithesis of all my creative will. When someone is sick, it's the antithesis of the way I created the human body to be. It's because of this perversion that's come into the system. Then I say, well, how can you ever talk about bringing glory to yourself through a man that was born blind or through a guy that's sick? And Jesus says, wait. In the story of the man born blind, the glory came when the Creator touched the eyes again and said, let there be light in those dead eyes. And the Creator has the power to take blind eyes and make them seeing eyes. 
And an eloquent testimony goes out. It says, you Pharisees and Jewish leaders might not know who he is. But all that I know is once I was blind, but now I can see. Now you put that all together and you decide who Jesus is. The same thing is going on here. And this is the ultimate sign in the Gospel of John to what, to what we might entitle the book of signs. It's a seventh sign which culminates John's eloquent proof of the fact that Jesus is who he is, the Son of God, the sent one that came to provide the answer to death. So it says this, is, this sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Now you're going to go through some time in your life. Mary and I have gone through them, and you're going to go through some time like this where Jesus doesn't come, doesn't seem to come, where it looks like he just stays where he is for two vital days. And that's tough. You see, it's awfully hard when the Son of God doesn't do what you ask him to do. And Mary and Martha were in the jaws of a situation. I mean, what would you think about a friend where you write, you send a messenger. I mean, one of your servants breaks the marathon record running to tell him that his best friend is sick. And then he just hangs around for two more days. To make matters even worse, if you were Jesus' friend, you could have concluded that the reason he hung around for two days was because he was scared. Let's pick that up in the next paragraph. It says here, When he heard this, Jesus stayed for two more days. Verse 7, Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you there. And you're going back? You see, if you were Jesus' friend, if you were Mary and Martha, and you heard that Jesus just got the news and just stayed there, you could have said, I he's chicken. He wouldn't even come to the aid of one of his best friends because he's scared of the Jewish leaders. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. What Jesus is saying is, all the way through the Gospel of John, he is the light. And just like there's twelve hours in the day, when you walk with Jesus, you'll walk in the light. And even when it seems like he's hanging around for two days, even when you might doubt his character, if you believe, you'll walk in the light. And that's what's going to be developed through the rest of this chapter. But if you turn away from Jesus, then we start to walk in the dark. We start stumbling over things, and it, we're afraid of the dark. When you're afraid, kids, in the middle of the night you had a terrible nightmare, and you call out and your mom and dad come into your room, what do you want them to do? Turn on the light. Jesus is saying he is always turning on the light. When you walk with him, you can see what's happening. You can not be afraid because he is the light. If you turn away from him, you start walking and stumbling into fear and all kinds of terrible things because he is the author of light. So if you move away from him, you walk in darkness. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I am going there to wake him up. Now, that is another very strange. You think there's not humor in the Bible? How many of you would think of a doctor? You call a doctor and you tell the doctor, my friend is sick, but he fell asleep. And the doctor says, well, I'm going to go into his room and wake him right up. 
Man, I have been to the hospital a hundred, hundreds of times, and I've never had a nurse yet. So, oh, I'll just go right in there and wake them up. No, they always say, shh. We've been trying to get them to rest, trying to get them to be quiet. The healing process is taking place as he sleeps. But Jesus says, he fell asleep. I'm going to go and wake him up. Now, that would make you question him again. The disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking about his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And here we're introduced to a Savior that can call death sleep. And we're going to find out why. You see, I can't call death sleep. In other words, if somebody in our family dies, like we've experienced, and I tell our kids, don't worry, they're just sleeping. And they say, well, Daddy, why don't you wake them up? Then I'm going to have to tell them the truth. What I mean is that they've died. And the tragedy of that from a human standpoint is I can't go over to the coffin. What I long to do in those situations is to go over to the coffin and shake the person. And they would wake up. Because that's what happens. How many of you have ever gone into your kid's room and, and, you, and you watched them and you thought they weren't breathing? The first time, first one, it's tough. You go in there and the baby doesn't look like they're breathing. What do you do? Like an idiot, you go over there and shake them. <laughs> Make sure they're awake. Make sure they're still with it. Make sure they're alive. How many of you have ever had that terror? You look at someone that you love and say, oh, they're not breathing. How many of you have ever had that? So you go over there and you wake them up. Jesus is going to do that with death. Incredibly, he's going to do that with death. Jesus told the disciples plainly that he died. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Verse 14, and for your sake, now this is the worst one that he tells them. I mean, first of all, it looks like he's scared and he's delaying. Then he tells them that the person is asleep and he's going to go and wake them up. Now look what he tells them. He tells them plainly that Lazarus is dead. What would you think of a friend if he said, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there? How many of you would like a friend that talked like that? I'm glad I wasn't there. Mary and Martha just sent for me. I'm really glad I wasn't there. You talk about confusing statements. Man, you'd say, Jesus, if you were there, you, you healed blind people, you healed crippled people. I even saw you raise a dead person. If you would have been there, you could have met the need. Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there. Why? So that you might see the glory of God, that you might believe. But now let us go. Now, then I love Didymus, the doubter. There's probably some Didymuses in the group, and Didymus is an incredible guy. Didymus or Thomas says to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Don't you love those guys? I'll go. I'll do it. I'll serve the Lord. We're all going to be killed. You know, you love people like that. The Lord in his grace so uses that doubter to become the most eloquent testifier to the resurrection of Christ because this guy at the end of the book falls on his face and cries out that marvelous confession, my Lord and my God. So be patient with the doubters. Be patient with the critical. Be patient with those that are negative. On his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's bad news. The Jews believed that the spirit would kind of hover around the body for about three days, but the fourth day, that was it. It was gone forever. There's no hope. The idea in Jewish circles, four days means there's no resuscitation. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. I'm reminded so much of our own society 
when I read those verses. I trust that we'll continue to exhibit that love of Christ. When we go through the agonizing experience of death, the comfort of God's people, of friends, is priceless. In fact, I've even seen God's grace among many unbelievers as in a time of crisis, God in his common grace pours out an incredible ability to bring friendship and support and presence to a difficult time like that. Something that I would encourage you to do, one thing that in our own culture that we have a hard time doing that the Jews were a lot better at, and that is expressing grief. We're uncomfortable when someone just breaks down and cries. You ever notice that? We kind of fidget. We don't know what to do. Do you know that that's one of the most healthy things that you can do when Lazarus has just died? And one of the most healthy things you can do is to have all your friends come and just cry. You see, we're afraid of what's going to happen. We feel, man, if I let it out, I'm going to break. You won't break. You break when you don't let it out. That's the terrible thing about our culture. We're all controlling ourselves, and I'm as guilty as anybody. And we're so frightened just to be ourselves. And in death, people often ask me, how should I act? It's almost like they're saying, now as a pastor, you've been around here a lot. How do you think I'm doing? I'll say, hey, we're not performing. We're not doing anything. Just live. There's a time to cry in this. Amazingly enough, even in a time of death, there's a time to laugh. If you haven't ever gone through that experience as a family, you won't understand why a family one minute can be telling jokes and they're laughing, which becomes like a healing salve that helps them to get through the time. The next minute, just right within a minute, they can switch and they're all bawling their eyes out. It's the way the emotions work, that ebb and flow. It's like the waves of the sea coming in. It's like a big storm. And at first, it's a gigantic storm. And then you can feel the waves ebb back and there can be a time of humor. And then it crashes you again. The Jews knew about that and they allowed their people, in fact, they even hired people to come in and cry with them. Now, we in God's family can have legitimate criers. We don't have to hire them, but that's what the Jews would do. They'd hire a whole bunch of people to come and bring their Kleenex and they'd all cry together. It says, when they heard that Jesus had come, that Martha heard in verse 20, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. This is so indicative of their character. You, the Bible is so consistent. If I was going to bet who was going to run to Jesus right away, Martha would be the one and Mary would tarry. So Martha runs out on the road and meets Jesus as he's approaching Bethany. And, he's, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. What a statement of faith. Tremendous relationship with Christ. Verse 23. Now this sounds like the kind of advice and comfort that we would give. Your brother will live again. And Martha responds, Sure, I know he'll live again. He's going to rise again at the last day. Now, up to now, we're right back in the Old Testament. We have two Old Testament saints that are expressing a common comfort. In other words, when you go and someone has lost a loved one, as a believer, what's one of the things that you say? Well, we're going to be together again. How many of you have ever said that? Isn't it comforting? No. We're going to be together again. Now, when you've experienced that and you're living in that grief, what's your response? I know that. But it still hurts. It still hurts. It looks like we just have two saints here that one of them is saying, we're going to rise again. 
You don't need to be that troubled. It's going to be okay in the end. We're going to rise again someday. And Martha says, Lord, I know that. I know Daniel chapter 12, that the saints are going to rise. You know, Lazarus was your friend. I know he was a godly believer from the Old Testament. I know he's going to rise again. But Jesus wasn't just offering a glib theological or religious phrase. In the last day, people rise again, though that's true. And when we believe it, there's tremendous confidence in that. But look what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 25, I am, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And what Jesus just said is, number one, that Lazarus did not really die. Not in the ultimate horrible sense of the word. You see, we've got to think of death. One way we need to think about death is when our personality, the part of us we can't see, that immaterial us, goes somewhere else, moves out of this house and goes somewhere else. Now that's physical death. And that's really not so bad. The pain of it is bad. The fear of it is bad. But the actual reality of it, according to Scripture, isn't that bad. It's kind of like a sting of a bee. And it stings like crazy at first, but then it ebbs. What Jesus is saying is that Lazarus did not experience the real death, which is to enter the realm of death forever. To enter the realm of anti-God. To enter the realm of Satan forever and ever. Because Lazarus was a believer in Christ. And so he didn't really die in the sense of the way the Bible talks about it, being eternally separated from the kingdom of God, being eternally separated from intimacy with God. Now that's the death that you and I need to really be concerned about. We need to be scared of that kind of death. But born-again believers will never face that kind of death. And that's what Jesus means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll never die. I could say, oh yeah, Lazarus is rotting like everybody else. And Jesus says, no, he isn't. Because he believed in me. He's not eternally separated from me. He's saying with David, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? Forever. Jesus is saying the one in the Old Testament that looked forward to my coming and believed in it, and Lazarus would be in that group, they never die. They will never, never die. They die physically. They get out of this earthly temple, but they don't face eternal separation from God, which is what the Bible calls the second death, which reaches its final expression at the great white throne judgment where God judges those that have not believed in his son according to their works. And they're eternally separated from him. And they're put in a place where evil is isolated and evil is allowed to run itself out forever and ever and ever. And all that evil brings is the essence of what hell is. The believer never faces that. Because whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to the Lord, verse 27, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah. That's what it means when it says she's the Christ. I believe that you're the Son of God who was to come into the world. Now that's a simple statement of faith. You say, Dave, how can I not be afraid of death? Very simple. I ask you one question. 
Are you resting? Are you putting your confidence? Are you relying upon the fact, the reality that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised one that God said would come into the world as the deliverer? In other words, are you relying upon the reality that Jesus is the Messiah? I ask a Jewish person, who do you believe is the Messiah? It's a very important question. Who do you believe is the one that God promised in your Old Testament scripture? And Lazarus was a Jew, Martha was a Jew that could respond, we believe that you're the Christ, the Messiah. The second phrase is we believe that you're the Son of God is an expression of the deity of Christ. Do you believe that he was with the Father and was sent into the world? Now, that's not an easy thing to believe. Jesus is claiming that he was in eternity, that he was living forever and ever and ever, and that he came out of the realm of heaven, out of the kingdom of God, into this world to bring the kingdom of God here. Now, that's an incredible thing. If I told you I was sent into the world to bring about a great deliverance, don't believe a word of it. I don't even remember the earliest memories I have is when I was about two years old, when a girl pushed me off the bike and I broke my leg. What a way to begin the memory of life, but that's what I remember. I don't remember her doing it. The picture I have in my mind, my earliest memory is about two years old, riding on my dad's shoulders with his great big cast on my leg. So that means I lived in this planet for two years and I can't remember a thing. Some of you, you say, man, I don't remember when I was two. Man, I don't go back till I was about five or six. So if I tell you I lived in eternity past and I've now come to this world, just throw me out. It's crazy. I was nowhere except in the mind of God before I was born. All of us are like that. All of you were non-existent, according to the Bible, until you were given birth, but not Jesus. Do you believe that? You see, Jesus lived in eternity past. He was sent out of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world, and that's the way he talked all the way through the Gospel of John. He says, I'm on a mission from my Father. Now, a guy that talks like that, you can say that he's totally a lunatic, or you better get down on your knees and worship him because he's the Son of God. And I love these people, childlike Martha. Martha says, I believe that. And you know what? If you join with Martha, if you say, Martha, I'm with you. If any of you say that, even while I'm teaching you, if any of you say, as we're talking, you say, Dave, I know I'm in the realm of death. I know I've, I haven't done what God wants me to do. But I want to have eternal life. And I believe like Martha. I believe Jesus is the Son of God that was sent to the world. In a moment of time, if you believe that, you don't need to be afraid anymore. You'll never be eternally separated from God. What an incredible gift. If you rest in the person of Jesus, the fact that he's the Messiah, the fact that he's the divine Son of God, and what the Gospel of John goes on to explain, that he gave his life for you, if you rest in him as a person, that moment of faith produces a life of faith that culminates in the resurrection and the life. And I would challenge every one of you, from the smallest child to the oldest adult, ask yourself, when the Lord Jesus says, Martha, do you believe this? Can you join with her and say, Martha, I join with you and say, I affirm from the depths of my heart, I believe Jesus is my Messiah and he's the Son of God who's going to give his life for me. If you say, I'm trusting in that, 
then you don't need to be afraid anymore. Tremendous, tremendous gift. That's what the gospel is. And don't make it complicated. If you can join with Martha, you don't need to be afraid. Verse 28, And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary outside. The teacher is here. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly, verse 29, and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, thinking she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Same thought that Martha had. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, it says in the text here that he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. That's a little bit soft. The Lord was angry. The Lord was not angry at Mary and Martha. He wasn't angry at the Jews. He was angry at the evil one who turned this planet into a place of weeping and crying and death. You see, our Savior comes up with me beside Dad Van Campen. And as he weeps over the death of his son, the Savior puts his arm around him and says, Dad, says, my son, I cry with you. I hate it. I hate every single agonizing moment of grief that death has brought. John's gospel starts out by telling us that when we pray to a Savior, we pray to a Savior who doesn't come with glib answers and he doesn't just flippantly say, hey, it's going to all be over in a little bit, don't worry about it. Jesus fully enters into the jaws and the pain and the irritation, the frustration, the anger that death brings. All that chaos. Why does this happen? Why did it happen now? And Jesus sees all of this grief and all the loneliness and he weeps over it. And his friends notice that and they say, oh, how much he loved Lazarus. But Jesus is the one friend in all the planet that doesn't just cry with us, that doesn't just get angry at death with us. But Jesus is the only person I know that can go on with the rest of the story. And if Paul Harvey was giving this address, it would be time for an advertisement. And he would go out through another paragraph because this is the ultimate rest of the story. We've got a scene, Lazarus, wrapped in a tomb, stinking in the hot Palestinian climate. We have Jesus weeping in front of his grave with a bunch of other friends, doing what all of us do. But so few knew how special that day crying at the tomb would be. Because Jesus said, Mary... Take the stone away. Tell them to take the stone away. Get some of those big heavy guys over there. Get some of the teenagers that are here. Push the stone away. Tell them not to hurt their backs, but let's get that big stone out of the way. And Martha, it had to be Martha. She's the practical one. She says, Lord, we can't do that. Man alive, he's going to blow everybody away. It's going to stink them all up. Don't you know he's been dead for four days? And Jesus said, hey, Remember I said, if you'll believe, you're going to see the power of God. So they roll the stone away in an eloquent simplicity. They have Jesus shouting at the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Now that's a crazy command. 
I mean, I could go down here to the graveyard from now until eternity and command people to come forth, and you better put me away to terror. Because dead people don't go anywhere. It's impossible. Dead people don't come anywhere. They don't go forth anywhere. They just lie there. But not when the Savior that created Adam in Genesis chapter 3. You see how it all ties together? If you have trouble believing this, then the whole biblical record, you might as well reject the whole thing. Because it all ties together. You see, Jesus could stand in front of Lazarus' grave and say, Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus came out. A Jewish friend of mine said, you know what the real miracle was, Dave? That he was able to move his feet enough to kind of roll and stumble out of the tomb. You know, I don't know about that. That'll be an interesting thing to ask, you know, how tight they made him and how the Lord made him. Man, if the Lord can make someone come back to life again, I'm sure he can enable them to stumble forth. And the Lord says, take the grave clothes off and set them free. What a joyous reunion there is. And I've got a big question I want to ask Lazarus. I want to ask Lazarus when I get to heaven, if the Lord blotted out his memory of that interim period, the four days, because in 2 Corinthians at the end, the Lord let the Apostle Paul tell us about a little experience he had where the Lord took him up into the third heaven, into the dwelling of God. And the Lord said, Paul says, I saw inexpressible things. I, I heard inexpressible things. And then Paul says, well, I can't tell you. And what about Lazarus? You know, he was with the Lord for four days, heavenly time. That's not too long. You know, a thousand years is like a day. Just a few seconds, not even that. But the Lord brought him back. Now, we think that that's a really big miracle. And that's what I want to talk to Lazarus about it. Lazarus, how did you feel coming back? And now you've got to go through death again. You know, it's appointed unto man once to die. Poor Lazarus had to go through the whole thing twice. You see how different the perspective of God is? The reason the Lord brought Lazarus forth is on this planet, in objective space-time and history, he wanted to give every one of you objective proof that you could trust your own loved ones to him. And a lot of us say, well, Lord, I wish you would do that for us. I wish you would raise Lazarus. That's what I've often asked. I said, Lord, all right, you can raise Lazarus. Why don't you raise David, my youngest brother-in-law? Why don't you raise John? Why don't you raise my mom? When I go to my mom's grave and I just sit there and I think, I'll say, Lord, why don't you raise mom? I'd like to see mom again. And the Lord says, Dave, just like he said to Martha, do you believe? If you believe, you won't walk in darkness. It's not easy to believe, but belief gives you light. And the Lord Jesus said, Dave, your mom is all right. And it wouldn't be a very kind thing for me just to throw my supernatural power around to let her come back to you to get older and older and more and more sickly when if you could see her now, you'd be tempted to worship her because of the marvelous work of recreation that I've done. He says, my son, do you believe? And that's what he says to every one of you. You see, he raised Lazarus so that you'd have his credentials, his authentication. 
And because he raised Lazarus, we can know that one day all those who have died in Christ he will raise as well.